we start with the battle over that social housing high-rise for low-income and homeless residents planned for Kitsilano. This project was approved by City Council last night. 13-story building, 129 units of social housing. What a battle there has been over this project. Got both sides of it, Bill Thielman, Adrian Carr standing by. Have a listen to this here. This is BC's Housing Minister David Eby here uh, talking to people who oppose this Kitsilano project, saying, relax, it's going to be fine. Here's what he had to say. I'm hopeful that we can address these concerns. And, and generally we find, uh, after they've been open for a few months and, and things settled out at the site, that people don't notice uh, the buildings. They, they really blend in nicely. And uh, there are obviously some exceptions to that. Okay, is this a fight over nothing? Could this battle uh, continue during the election campaign in the fall? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Bill Thielman. Bill is well known to the CKNW listeners. He's running for Vancouver City Council this fall. He is opposed to the project. Bill, thank you for coming on. My pleasure, Mike. Vancouver City Councillor Adrian Carr on the line. Adrian is with the Green Party at City Hall. She supports the project. She voted in favor of it at, on, uh, at Council last night. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Uh, my pleasure. Okay, Councillor Carr, let me go to you first. Can you please say why you voted for the project last night and why you support it? Well, number one, we have homeless people in this city, and I don't believe anybody in Vancouver wants to see people living on the street, living in the parks, Um, and the homeless count is rising. Um, So we need safe places for people to be, places that are good homes where they can, um, in many cases, um, get their lives onto a solid and healthy path. There's also people at risk of homelessness, and half the building is going to be dedicated to those. They may not be hopeless, homeless now, but their incomes are so low, they can't afford housing in Vancouver. Um, so those two, you know, we want to see housed in places that are decent, allowing people to get on um, with working in their lives, with, um, with building a family, etc. Bill, Bill Thielman. Well, uh, you know, Mike, I'm, I'm running with team and team councillor Colleen Hardwick has been uh, really strongly opposing this in council with, with councillor Carr. But uh, really, this project, it's, it is really, uh, this particular project, it's over height, it's over density, 13 stories high, uh, 129 people, it's warehousing people, it's 60 feet from an elementary school right across the street, it's single room only, it's next to a shelter for women who are victims of violence, it's been operating there successfully for over 15 years, uh, it's not in any way a fit for the neighborhood, and that's the problem. It doesn't work for this neighborhood, and they turned out overwhelmingly. As Councillor Carr knows, this is perhaps the largest turnout we've ever seen for a council meeting, certainly one of the largest ever, and that's because over 75% of the speakers were against this, and they were from the neighborhood. They weren't people coming in saying, hey, you, you Kitsilano people should take this. It was Kitsilano people saying, we support social housing, we support the need for more homeless shelters and more homeless housing, but it is not the right thing to do, not the right place, not the right size, not the right approach. Councillor Carr, what do you say to that? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, yes, it, it, it has had more interest from people than probably anything else. But I must say on the West Side, one of the big public hearings that, that went on for day after day was the opposition to Point Grey residents um, to a bike lane on Point Grey. Well, people love it now. Um, the point around this housing is this. Um, we have money in, in available from BC Housing and a commitment to build over 300 rooms to house the homeless or at risk of homeless people. Um, Four of those sites are on the east side. This is the only site on the west side. I understand people's anxiety about it, um, but I believe that the community um, fears are unwarranted. Um, Half the housing, half of the units in this housing will be for people, for example, who have disabilities, who simply have a low income. 
Um, uh, the uh, director of BC Housing said it will also include Indigenous people who are more at risk of homelessness than any other group. Um, there are people who will have uh, mental health issues, yes, and drug-related issues. That's true, too. But we ensured in the amendments we did to that report last night that there will be incredible volume of support services at place in the building. Uh, and uh, and there will be, um, in fact, um, another another amendment um, to look at changing the configuration of rooms. So not all would be single rooms. Um, we're looking at finding more funding funding to be able to put in one-bedroom or two-bedroom rooms. So there okay. might be a, a mother with a child, for example. Bill, Bill Tiemann, what do you say to all that? Well, that's all fine and dandy, but that's not what the B.C. housing proposal was. It's not what the province and the federal government funded. I don't know how far those amendments go. But the problem really is, Mike, this this whole project was so flawed it should have never got to the council stage. And it, when it did, council should have said this isn't going to work. Um, now we've been <clears throat> pardon me, jammed into this situation where uh, there's threats to pull the funding, etc. But Quetzalino has many social housing, supportive housing sites already, and they're all smaller. And that's the kind of program that works the best. We heard from uh, former Justice Tom Gove, Thomas Gove, who has done more work on downtown east side as a, a judge and uh, very well respected. He said this is a bad idea. Professor Julian Summers, a noted expert on this, said congregate housing of this size is, is a bad way to do things. It's warehousing people. Uh, so they ignored what the that, experts. What does, that that mean? what does that mean, by the way, warehousing well, having, people? Having what do you a, mean by that? Have a giant building with all people with difficult and um, challenging problems all stored in the same place. That's why I said warehousing. So you're much better off having smaller facilities that fit into the community and we've had no problems there's there's a there's places in my neighborhood there's places all over Kitsilano there's been no problems the Sancta Maria Adrian, house which is right next to it has been helping people for 15 years I didn't even know it was there until this project came along Adrian Adrian go yeah, ahead I know so, you want to get in so, so yeah so basically um, there are experts who have differing opinions and we heard a, um, a countering experts who said congregate housing works just as effectively as dispersed housing um, and in terms of you know people with problems I mean Having a low income, is that a problem? Does that make you a person that you don't want to have in your neighborhood? Um, I, you know, I am going to trust that once this housing is built, the people who are opposing it now are actually going to see that it works fine, and these are wonderful people who just need a good start in right. getting their lives on track, and they hey, will be open-hearted to that. Hey, Bill Tillman, what do you say to that argument, especially the one that, well, this is just a little bit of sort of West Side snobbery, creme de la creme. We don't want poor people in our neighborhood. Go put them somewhere else in some other part of the city, not in our, not in our backyard. Like, what do you say to that argument? Well, first of all, it's not what people said, and I listened to a great deal of the 290 or 85, 90, 300 speakers. Uh, That's not what anybody said who was opposed. But secondly, we've seen the Marguerite Ford building where uh, police incident violence, uh, incidents and uh, reports of violence and all sorts of um, police calls went up dramatically, thousands of percent, and never came down. And that was when they were warned again that this was a kind of combination of factors that was not going to work. And so, you know, Councillor Carr can talk about the Marguerite Ford situation, but it has not improved. It's actually now a real problem area in the city. Okay, you know, right? I, and I will ahead, agree David. with you, Mar- Mar- Marguerite Ford, uh, people admit now it wasn't well handled in terms of the, the people and the mix of people that were put in there. Things have changed, and I think you know that, Bill. Um, there are ways in which um, we know for sure um, that the, uh, sta- the, popu- the population that's going to move into that building are going to be 
um, a variety of people. There are um, methods for every single person to have a support plan, to have services in place for them. I mean, Marguerite Ford, don't keep citing it over and over. It was a mistake. People realize it was a mistake, and that won't happen again. Well, Councillor Carr, how many staff will be at the Arbutus Project then? Tell tell us how many staff will be working there full-time. We we don't know yet, but we do know that we've asked for, we have asked in amendments to make sure that that staffing is robust and that it will meet the needs um, so that every single person who has an individualized program uh, for recovery and for getting on with their lives will be supported with support staff on site um, uh, to help them. Hey, Bill, really quickly, is this all over now? This project was approved by council last night. We do have an election in the fall. You're running for council. I mean, is it, could a new council reverse this decision? Well, it depends on the state of, of where things are at. But, the, you know, there's a number of conditions that the amendments that were made by Councillor Carr and others there. And I have to have a good look and see that. But um, <clears throat> actually, I don't know if it's possible to stop this at this stage. Uh, you know, once you've once you've approved it and signed the contract, it's very hard to do. But it's just another example of city council not listening to the neighborhood, not listening to the community, imposing things on them that they don't want. And that's not right. the way to build the city. Okay. And every single amendment addressed every single concern raised by the people who came to speak, Bill. None of them support it now, Councillor Card. None of them support it now. They didn't agree with your amendments in terms of that now they think this is a great project. They don't want the project. Okay, let's talk about that brazen jailbreak now, the daring prison escape by accused hitman Robbie Alkalil. This guy had been on trial for murder in a deadly gangland shooting in a bar at the Sheraton Wall Center Hotel back in 2012. The trial is now going on without him after he got away from jail. Alkalil escaped from the North Fraser Pretrial Center in Coquitlam. That happened last Thursday. Officials say two men disguised as maintenance workers used fake ID to get into the jail. They broke him out, possibly by cutting through a perimeter fence. They escaped in a white Econoline van, and they're still at large. Who knows where they are? They may have left the country by now. Okay, the mistakes, the screw-ups here by corrections officials, by the RCMP. This thing has been a comedy of errors from the start. I've got former maximum security prison manager Alan Mullen standing by. First, have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Catherine Rickhart. At North Fraser Pretrial Center in Port Coquitlam, members of the RCMP investigate how an accused killer escaped. Rabbi Al-Khalil broke out of the maximum security facility Thursday night. Al-Khalil's connections range from across Canada to the United States, Europe and Asia. A Canada-wide arrest warrant and an Interpol red notice are being prepared. Al-Khalil is charged with first-degree murder for the high-profile and very public 2012 shooting death of gangster Sandy Durer in the Sheraton Wall Centre. Okay, what does British Columbia's top cop say about this? Mike Farnworth, the Solicitor General, here are his thoughts. There will most definitely be a, a full-scale uh, review and investigation into what happened and how it happened. Yeah, yeah. Do you think? Yeah, I think there will be a, a full-scale review. So many unanswered questions here, and the questions, by the way, are piling up even higher. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Alan Mullen, former correctional manager, Kent Maximum Security Institution. I'm pleased to welcome him back to the show. Alan, thank you for coming on today. My pleasure, Mike. Good morning. Okay, good morning to you. First of all, let's talk about this particular facility where this guy 
escape, the North Fraser Pretrial Center. I know you've, you're familiar with it. You've been in there, right? Can you describe it? Yeah, it's it's uh, you know it is it is a multi level uh, institution. It is it is built as a sort of a maximum security because it's a pretrial. So there's there's various levels of of inmates being housed there. Uh, but it's it's much like any other provincial or federal uh, institution. There is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cameras inside and outside of that facility. There's a sally port, which is an entry and exit point where everybody has to go through. It doesn't matter if you've got a badge or not. And everybody has to be cleared uh, to get in and out of that institution. So it is quite secure, um, you know, as, as any institution is and should be. Okay, when you hear the, the details of this story, you know, you get these two guys show up apparently there to fix the air conditioning or something. And then somehow managed to not only get inside, but then break this guy out. Like, what goes through your mind when you hear that as a former prison official? Like, what, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, there is so many more questions than answers here. I mean, first of all, obviously, how did they get in? You know, they've got this fake ID that they've downloaded off the Internet. I mean, I know how security yeah. intelligence works within the institution. And you don't just submit, you know, a picture of your ID and Bob's your uncle, you're in the door. No, it's a lot more extensive than that. And even if you want to visit an inmate, there's, there's a waiting period, there's a process. You have to give references, and those references are called and checked. So, so that's the first question. How did they get in? How are they in a position to do this? But the bigger question is, there's inmate movement control systems in every institution on the continent. How is this inmate, uh, this of, uh, individual, how is he in that perfect, specific spot at that specific time? Because if he wasn't, if he was a minute off, it wouldn't have worked. Uh, that's the bigger question here, because there is strict inmate movement control uh, protocols in place. So how was he at that fence or that location of the institution to crawl out and jump in the van and leave? Uh, that's the bigger question here. Okay, speaking to Alan Mullen, former correctional manager, Kent Maximum Security Institution. All right, so this thing goes from bad to worse. Not only do they let these two guys into the jail to break the, this, other, this other guy out, but then the RCMP release the fake photos of the suspect. So we're told here that the two accomplices used fake ID to get into the jail. Uh, the photos that were on the ID cards that they used were later re released by the cops as uh, saying, these are the two guys we're looking for. It turns out they're fake photos downloaded from the Internet. Have a listen to this report here now from Global News reporter Kirsten Robinson in this part of the story. Police believe we have identified the two suspects based on those identifications. The two suspects and accused killer Rabbi Al-Khalil's jailbreak initially identified from these photos, which turned out to be fake IDs available for purchase online on various websites. After Vancouver Sun reporter Kim Bolin broke the news Saturday, RCMP confirmed the previously released images of Al-Khalil's alleged accomplices are stock images that do not represent the actual suspects. Okay, now here's where it gets really bizarre because the RCMP are tr now trying to say, well, there's maybe some value in re releasing these fake photos because it's, it's generated tips for the investigators anyway and that the photos kind of look like these two guys. There's a, <laughs> there's a resemblance between the two guys, the, the guys in the fake photos. Alan, what do you think of this? Alan Mullen. Go ahead, Alan. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, Mike. The, the, uh, to, to, I've been doing investigations for a long time, and to say that fake photos are going to give you 
a realistic leads in your investigation. Like, I, I, I don't know who came up with that line. But, I mean, there is a, a, a clear breakdown here. I mean, if you didn't do your due diligence to say, we better be sure before we put this out to the public. Uh, I mean, this is just yeah. crazy. And then the, the BC media, thank goodness for the media to say, no, excuse me, these are, these are images that you can download on the Internet. I mean, you, you put in a search, yeah. you, they, come up, they come up right away. Uh, so that's, that's, it's, it's a huge misstep. And why are you giving photos from the Internet instead of security surveillance photos? There is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cameras at that facility. You know, you can, you can get that information in a nanosecond. It's all digital. Uh, what, why haven't we seen those pictures? Yeah, and it wasn't only the media that sort of rang the bell on these fake photos. It was also sort of citizen sleuths here in B.C., just members of the public who right away smelled a rat on this thing and looked at these photos and said, hang on a second here, let's do a quick Google search. And, oh, these photos are just fake stock photos you can download from these websites that sell fake ID. I mean, you know, are you telling me the RCMP couldn't figure that out? And people at home are sitting in front of their computers. They can figure it out in two seconds. I mean, this is this is ridiculous. And then the other situation, like the, the point that you just raised. Wait a sec. Instead of releasing the fake photos, how about we see some real photos of these guys? I mean, they were in this prison. There's cameras everywhere. I mean, they got to have photos of these guys. Do they there's, not? There's, uh, there, oh. there, there's no there's, there's no question. It is a, literally an impossibility that there is not photos and footage of, of these individuals doing doing this. It, it's just, it's an impossibility. The only way would be, and I'm, I've heard it suggested that the CCTV system was down. Well, let me tell you right now, oh. if, that system, if that system was down, Mike, that institution would be in lockdown. It's happened before. Systems fail. It's happened at Kent's during my tenure. And if, if there's any problem with the security system in the facility... The facility is placed in lockdown until the problem is rectified. So well, that's not the, that's not going to sell. Here, here's another interesting segment on this. Like one of the things that occurred to me is how did the police get these fake photos in order to release them to the public? And apparently, uh, the the fake ID was left behind. So that's why the, that's how they got them. And you know, the first thing I thought was that's probably all part of the plan. Like, I bet you these guys deliberately left the ID behind, hoping the police would do exactly what they did, <laughs> put the fake photos out to the public. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, you know. It, you, sure you look, find, it sure looks that way. It sure looks you, that way to me. You, you, you find a couple of pieces of ID on the ground, and, and, and you automatically just go and run it. Uh, I, I don't know. I mean, to me, if that's what you did, uh, I've got questions about your credentials uh, because that just shouldn't be the way. I mean, I'm speculating that perhaps uh, those those photos were used by these people to get clearance for the institution, and then BC Corrections gave them as part of the the application package uh, they gave them to the RCMP. I mean, I, bet, I just can't believe that they found them on the ground and and thought it was a good idea to put it out to the public. Like, I bet these guys are just laughing all the way to the Bahamas or wherever it is they they are right now when they saw that the police had actually put these fake photos out online and said, these are the two guys we're looking for. Speaking to Alan Mullen, he is a longtime a corrections manager in B.C., talking about the jailbreak, Robbie Alcalil, who's still still at large with his two accomplices. The the RCMP have put out a statement here in the last day saying that this investigation is going ahead full steam. They are getting lots of tips from across the country. 
they say. The investigation's going on around the clock as they try to find these people. But here's another thing they said with regard to the CCTV footage from the jail. The RCMP say in a statement, after reviewing the closed-circuit television footage, no useful images have been identified for release to the public to further the investigation. Alan Mullen, how does that happen? Like, how do two guys walk into a jail, break out someone from the jail, and they're saying they don't have any useful camera footage? Well, I mean, I don't know what the RCMP is referencing. I'm not there, and I'm not seeing what they're seeing. Uh, but if you're asking me point blank, if there's no footage, I would say it's, it's literally an impossibility. Well, they said there's no use, they said there's no useful footage. Mike, the cameras in these institutions are better than, than they have in casinos. You can, you can zoom in and, you know, read the time on somebody's watch. Like these cameras are state of the art and it's not just a few cameras. We're talking about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cameras. So you're telling me that from all of these different angles and all of these different cameras, we don't have one single image of either of these people. Uh, sorry, uh, I'm, I'm just not buying it. It's, I mean, it's even just if, not working. Even if it's not like some super crystal clear, high definition image of the faces of these two accomplices, you'd think that any kind of image of these two people would be helpful. Would well, it any, not? Any, anything would be better than a fake image from the Internet. Yeah. Anything. Right. A shadow would be better. I mean, you know, anything would be useful at this point, even to show that, you know, sort of the build or the stature of these people. Anything would be would be better than nothing. We're talking about the prison break, the escape of accused murderer Robbie Alcalil, who had been on trial for murder, the trial going on without him after he broke out of jail last week with the assistance of two accomplices. They are still at large. Police have said this man is dangerous and they are frantically looking for him. But police are also warning that he has international connections across Canada, the United States, Europe and Asia. He could be anywhere, it appears. And maybe it's with along with the two guys who helped him break out of jail. Alan Mullen is my guest, former correctional manager, Kent Maximum Security Institution. Let's listen again to Solicitor General Mike Farnworth here on the RCMP's mistakes here, especially putting out those fake photos of the suspects. Have a listen to Farnworth here. I think the public deserves an, an explanation uh, from the RCMP as to, uh, as to why that was done. Mistakes can be made. One hopes that they're not, and that uh, what I think what we also want to ensure is, is that if there was a mistake made, that we learn from it, uh, that police learn from it, uh, to ensure that, uh, that it doesn't happen again. Squeeze in a few phone calls here. Margaret on the line in Langley. Hi, Margaret. Go ahead. Hello, Mike. Um, uh, what's it, cameras aside, what about the human presence of these highly trained prison guards who are there watching constantly with, their, with eyes these prisoners? And are they not behind massive locked gates, like layers of doors that are locked? Only They only open them to pass them their food and their whatever they're drinking and medication, whatever. And also, do they not have electric wire fences around these maximum security prisons like they do in the awful prison camps in North Korea? It's horrible. There's the regime. But I'm just saying, don't they have electrified wire fences? So if they okay. hit, got outside, okay. they'd be electrified by the fence. Okay, that's good questions. Alan, your thoughts? Yeah, well, first of all, no, we don't have uh, uh, electric fences at any institution in Canada at the federal or provincial uh, levels. There, there are some 
um, in places like Arizona, but not here. It's deemed to be cruel and unusual punishment. So uh, it's a good question, Margaret, but no, uh, we don't have electric fences, uh, first of all. And then second of all, to, to your first question, uh, there, are, there are a lot of staff there. Um, unfortunately, I referenced this earlier in the week, um, there's the, the staff. There's a big staff shortage in BC Corrections, so we need to be supportive of our of our uh, correctional officers. Uh, the problem is, you do have to let uh, these folks outside for fresh air. I mean, that is their right uh, in in the charter. So you do have to. They, they they are permitted time in the yard, time in the in the in the outside recreation field, and that's uh, what happened in this situation. Uh, he didn't just walk through a door. Uh, they actually use a blowtorch on a fence is what's been reported by BC Corrections and the RCMP. So when this individual was out for his recreation time, he, he was able to escape through this through the fence, not through um, one of the many doors, as you referenced. There, there certainly are those doors in place. Richard in Richmond. Hi, Richard. Go ahead. Hi, I'm just wondering, uh, with regard to the comment you guys made earlier about the fact that this guy had to be in exactly the right place at exactly the right time, I'm just wondering, does this not smell of the fact that they might have had somebody on the inside? And is that maybe why the photos haven't been released? Alan? You know, uh, I've, I've heard that speculation. Uh, I, I never want to be pointing fingers at anybody without proof. But you see, here's yeah. the issue. When you don't release any information to the public, which you have an obligation to do so, whether you're the minister, the RCMP, or BC Corrections, when you don't release information, this is what happens. People, myself included, speculate as to all kinds of things. And is it possible? Anything is possible. I don't want to point the finger at any correctional officer or BC Corrections until we have the full picture. But the public has a right to know, and we had a right to know last Friday. Let's see the photos. Let's see the photos from the the closed-circuit cameras. That's right. Okay, Alan, thank you for coming on. Pleasure as always, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the campaign for justice now for the victims and families of the 9-11 terror attacks. Nearly 3,000 people were killed in the horrific attacks of that day. Don't forget that includes 24 Canadians killed in 9-11. Now 9-11 justice groups are expressing anger and frustration. This weekend at Donald Trump's golf club in New Jersey... Professional golfers will gather for the latest tournament in the Saudi Arabia-backed Professional Golf League. 9-11 survivors and their families are appalled at this because, of course, the connections between Saudi Arabia and the 9-11 terrorists. This tournament will happen but an hour drive from Ground Zero, New York City. Not only that, the current U.S. President Joe Biden getting a lot of criticism for his recent visit to Saudi Arabia, where he famously did a fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman, otherwise known as MBS, the leader of Saudi Arabia. This is after President Biden had earlier promised to make Saudi Arabia a pariah on the world stage. Let's discuss this now with my guest, Brett Eagleson. Brett is the president of 9-11 Justice, one of the major groups standing up for the families and victims. And I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Hey, Brett, thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me, and thanks for covering the story. It's such an important story, and, and in my opinion, it's underreported. And uh, thank you for you for covering it and for all the Canadian support that we received over, over the last 20 years. You bet, Brett. Thank you for coming on. Let me uh, talk about your your personal connection to this campaign because i know you lost your dad on 9-11 right like i know it's painful memories could you just briefly tell us tell us about your dad 
Sure. I lost my dad when I was 15. I was a sophomore in high school at the time. And, um, you know, at the time after losing my father, I was just really focused on getting through high school and trying to be a normal teenager, focused on sports and finding a girlfriend and getting into college. And it wasn't until 2016 that I started reading and learning more about um, what actually happened that day. Because I was at a point in my life where I can, you know, I, I was married, I, I had a job, I, you know, we were thinking about having kids. And um, I was just at a point in my life where I can kind of look back and, and read some of the investigative files. And I was made aware of a, a law that was pending in the United States Congress that they needed help from um, family members to help pass. So uh, I sort of jumped in there and haven't looked back since. Um, we were successful in creating a law called Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act. It was vetoed by President Obama, and we successfully overrode it, and we gave uh, President Obama his first and only veto override of his entire eight years of his presidency. And ever since that, it's just been a dogfight with our federal government, the FBI, and others to get this information declassified. Um, finally, fast forward to 2021, we finally got President Biden's attention on this and we got him to pass an executive order which called upon the FBI to declassify to the greatest extent possible all the documents which it had in its files um, over the past 20 years. Um, from that declassification, we have now conclusive concrete evidence that the uh, FBI was investigating the Saudis all the way up until 2021 believe it or not. So decades after the uh, 9-11 Commission reports, the 9-11 Commission report ended in 2004, we had files declassified um, that were dated 2021. The FBI files say there were over a dozen Saudi Kingdom officials that were on the Saudi payroll that were directed by senior Saudi officials to come here to America to support uh, a network for these hijackers to be successful. At least one of these Saudi government officials was a Saudi intelligence operative. So we've known it for years. We've been shouting about it for years. We finally now have the FBI documents. And I should add one thing. Um, uh, President, President Trump met with me. He met with my mother and 11 other family members in 2019, where we were asking for his help to declassify these documents. He said he was going to help. Uh, less than 24 hours after that meeting, which happened on 9-11, by the way, in 2019, uh, Attorney General William Barr the next day invoked what's known as the state secrets principle against these documents to keep these documents hidden and out of public view. So President Trump knew in 2019 what these documents said. We finally get the documents from the 2021 Biden executive order. So in 2019, he knows that these documents are very damning to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, um, keeps them keeps them secret. And now the documents are out. And now this is the same president who is hosting uh, the, the Saudi government at his golf course in Bedminster, New Jersey, which is less than 50 miles from ground zero in a state where 750 people were blown away. And that, that's uh, where that's where your dad that's where your dad died. Right. Was your dad at the World Trade Center? My dad was in the World Trade Center. Yeah. Uh, Dad, a hero that day. He um, was on the 17th floor. He spoke to my older brother, Kyle, after both planes had hit. Uh, so he survived the initial attacks. He told my brother that he was uh, okay, but it was chaotic, and he was going to do what he can to help, to, to help the others evacuate. My brother pleaded with him to get out of the building. He then said that he would. 
Um, we later found out that um, my father and a colleague were in the lobby. And they were walking out of the front door of the towers. Apparently, my dad turned back and looked at the chaos and the carnage and, and uh, noticed that there was major communication issues. And being uh, part of the mall management team, uh, he knew that he had a box of portable two-way radios back on the 17th floor. You know, the walkie-talkies that, that you see, like, maintenance staff often use to sure. communicate with you. Get a big box of those. So he said to his colleague, okay, I'm going to run back up to the 17th. I'm going to go grab wow. the radios. Um, uh, I'm going to hand them out to the FDNY. Uh, I'm going to make sure the 17th is clear and there's nobody in the stairwell, and then I'll, and then I'll come meet you outside. Oh, and man. it was at that point that they parted ways. He went back up to the uh, 17th to grab the radios, and, and uh, we, we've never recovered him. Uh, so the, at some point, the towers fell on him. And, uh, you know, that's the thing. It's just that there's thousands of stories just like this. And when right. you see, you know, comments from people like Charles Barkley that are outrageous fake, or you see people like Phil Mickelson saying, I'm just playing golf. I'm just providing for my family. Well, you know, my dad was just providing for his family, and he got blown away that day. And, it's you know, these comments are just so egregious. All right, continuing my discussion now with Brett Eagleson. Brett is the president of 9-11 Justice. As you heard there, he lost his dad on 9-11. He was at, his dad was at the World Trade Center that day. The controversy now over the Saudi Arabian-backed professional golf league they've got their next tournament is this weekend in new jersey at donald trump's golf course hey brett we talked before the break there about uh, phil mickelson and probably the most high profile golfer on the saudi back golf uh, tour let me play a clip here for you of phil mickelson get your thoughts he was asked what he had to say to people like yourself to family members of uh, 9-11 victims and here's what phil mickelson had to say and we'll get your thoughts I would say to everyone that um, has lost loved ones, lost friends in 9-11, that I have deep, deep empathy for them. I, I can't emphasize that enough. I, I um, have the deepest of th sympathy and empathy for them. Okay, Brett, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think those words ring, ring hollow to us. Um, he, he, he's essentially saying, I care, but only to the extent that, you know, money will make me not care. So I, I think Phil really just doesn't give a crap about it. He's getting a huge payday um, and he's valuing money and fame and, and fortune over, over, over morality. So, I mean, if Phil would have the courage to meet with us and sit with us and we've made overtures to him to let us walk you through the documents, let us show you what we know about the kingdom's role uh, in, in facilitating 9-11. Uh, let, us, let us talk to you about how the kingdom carpet bombs Yemen. Let us talk to you about how they oppress women, how they murder homosexuals, how they publicly execute people. Let us, let us educate you on all those aspects. And if you choose to continue to have business with them and do business with them, well, then we've said our piece, and that's between you and your maker, Phil. But, you know, he doesn't even have the courage to address our talking points and to address our issues. So, you know, I was telling you a little bit about how my dad died a hero. Well, um, you know, m my dad was a hero and somebody I can be proud of. And, and, and Phil is just a coward. Uh, speaking of Brett Eagleson, my guest, 9-11 Justice. I know you guys will have a presence there at the, at the golf tournament in New Jersey this weekend. Is that right? You guys are going out there? 
We are. We're actually um, it's shaping up to be a really big event. Um, we're going to have a press conference 10.30 a.m. on Friday, a few miles away from the golf course. We expect over 100 family members to be there. We expect uh, representations from um, NYPD, uh, uh, FDNY. We hope to have um, some fire trucks there. I, I think it's going to be a really big event. We've, we've got wow. confirmation from over 40 national media outlets. So we're going to be making a lot of noise. Yeah, I have no doubt about that, Brad. Hey, let's talk a little bit about uh, President Biden and his recent trip to Saudi Arabia and his his famous uh, the fist bump seen around the world there with uh, MBS, the leader of Saudi Arabia. Let's let's go back in time first to what Biden said back when he was running for president. So this is during the last presidential election campaign. Biden was asked about his views on Saudi Arabia. And here's what he said back then. Khashoggi was, in fact, murdered and dismembered, and I believe in the order of the crown prince. And I would make it very clear, we were not going to, in fact, sell more weapons to them. We were going to, in fact, make them pay the price and make them, in fact, the pariah that they are. There's very little social redeeming value of the in the present uh, government in Saudi Arabia. Okay, that's uh, President Biden speaking back in the uh, election campaign in 2019, and you heard him reference Jamal Khashoggi there, the Washington Post columnist who was uh, killed uh, by Saudi agents. That's according to U- uh, the United States' own security. Then recently we had the Biden trip to Saudi Arabia, the fist bump with uh, MBS, Brett, Brett Eagleson, what went through your mind there when you saw Biden, Biden do that trip to Saudi Arabia? Right. So I, I think that, you know, everyone's opinion is different. Um, many of the family members that I've spoken to within the 9-11 community, we actually take a surprise. We, we have a surprising take on this. Um, and, and before anyone accuses us of being pro-Democrats and stumping for Biden, I want to set the record straight that it was our group who told Biden to stay away from ground zero last year. We had 4,000 family members sign a message to say, you're not welcome to come to our hallowed ground unless you honor your campaign promise and declassify those documents. So, you know, Biden campaigned on the promise that he was going to make Saudi Arabia a pariah. He campaigned on the promise that he was going to declassify these records. And up until September, beginning part of September of last year, he had not yet declassified the records. So we, we put a big public pressure campaign on him. Um, so, um, we, we, he is the only president that actually has done something tangible for us. Now, him going to Saudi Arabia, um, it, you know, it was tough to watch. However, we don't necessarily blame the president because, you know, he's the head of our state. And, and, and there's a difference between a former president profiting off of the Saudis and making millions of dollars and knowing what that president knew and a president who promised he would help us and a president who went out of his way to make sure that we didn't get those documents versus the president who is our current head of state. And, and things, things change. I mean, we have gas in this country in some areas that are over $5 a gallon. The Saudis continue to bomb Yemen. Uh, the Saudis continue to oppress women. So if President Biden can go to Saudi Arabia and if he can spread a message of peace, if he can go there to try to bring peace between Israel and Saudi Arabia, if he can go there to make gas prices a little bit better here in the United States and, and I'm sure around the world, we support that. You know, we, we, we support diplomacy. I don't think you're going to accomplish anything by burying your head in the sand and, and, and just choosing not to engage. But however, our message was very clear to President Biden. 
and, and, and it remains to be seen whether or not he addressed our issues. And we have not yet heard anything back from the administration. But we said, if you do choose to go to Saudi Arabia, because we understand that, that you must engage in diplomacy and you must engage with the Saudis to try to, to try to better our lives, if you do go, you should bring forward the, the FBI documents that your own administration declassified, that, that your own FBI says, you know, look, the Saudis were responsible for 9-11, and we should be talking point number one or two. Um, and, and, and that was our position on it. And, and it remains to be seen if that actually happened. But we encourage the president, encourage the administration, do not forget about the 9-11 families. Bring up our talking points as you talk about a whole host of other things. Hey, Brett, last question for you. Just got 30 seconds here. What do you hope to achieve there this weekend with the uh, the Saudi-backed golf tournament at Donald Trump's golf course? You described the media event you have planned for this Friday. What do you hope that will be the outcome of that? 30 seconds here, Brett. Public education, public awareness. I want the world, I want everyone. I want Canadians, I want Americans, I want everyone around the world to know the extent that the kingdom of Saudi Arabia was behind the 9-11 attack. And we need to put the same amount of pressure the media needs to exert the same amount of pressure on the Khashoggi issue as they, you know, or sorry, put the same amount of pressure on the 9-11 issue as they focused on on the Khashoggi issue. Right. Because we now, we now have the documents to uh, prove it. Thanks for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me.